You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club. I am your mild-mannered host, Matthew Rushing. And with me, well, they're not always here, but I feel like they're always here in spirit. The I've got some... I, I, it feels like it's been a long time since I've had both of these guests on the same show. And I'm, I'm feeling rather giddy. I, I feel like... I could fly right now, and so I'm I'm really glad to have both of these guys. One, the amazing Bruce Gibson. Hello, hello. Yay, I'm getting a golf clap from the other guy that you're going <laughs> to introduce here. Hey, you know what? What's funny is, well, you we haven't talked about what you're going to talk about, so I'll hold off. Yeah. Well, Don't give then, it away, Bruce. Well, allow me to introduce the dulcet-toned John Mills. Well, I am bald. Which is uh, a very important. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, is a very important uh, aspect if you're going to have a supervillain on a show. So, you well, know. it's true, and yes. I noticed that you decided not to go with one of your fabulous wigs tonight. So, well, they're all at the cleaners, unfortunately. But oh, uh, they'll be Mrs. back next week. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Yeah. See, what so. I was going to say is I just came from a holiday party <laughs> at our office and I, I just realized I've got a blue shirt on and, and then I've got a red sweater over it. I feel very much like Clark from Smallville, always having to wear red and blue in some kind of combination. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, coordinated. I like that. I like that. Uh, was, it a Lula, uh, was it a hula theme, you know, like kind of like we get with Lex and his, <laughs> his band of buffoons? His no, but it was a casino player. theme. Ooh, Ooh, very nice. Like Canto Bite. Yes. Mm. <laughs> With, uh, you know, less running, you know, cow donkey things. Yes, so. cow donkey. Uh, there, there, were, there were some asses there. Oh. <laughs> there were some, there were some <laughs> jackasses in Tip the party. Tip your waiters, but, everybody. Oh, gosh. Well, we're in for a great show tonight. Uh, if you don't realize what we're going to be talking about we're going to go all the way back to the original superman film superman the movie that came out in 1978 directed by richard donner uh the one that actually i would say kind of kicked off what we think of as a hollywood franchise superhero movie in a way that nobody had ever seen before so we are going to talk through that and luckily and you're not going to believe me but i legitimately when I planned this had no thought that it was the 40th anniversary as we're recording this in just a couple of days it was just my thought hey that might be kind of fun to talk about that before we get to Aquaman well fortuitously it is the 40th anniversary so we're going to celebrate that together Uh, before we dive into the film uh, just make sure you check us out all over the place you can find the 602 Club everywhere you get your podcasts Uh, if you're over on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and all that stuff. Give us a star rating review. Help people find the show. It really does. Um, and it's been a long time since we've gotten a new star rating and review. Um, and I love reading those reviews out in the show. And so uh, do that. Again, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. The biggest thing, too, wherever you are getting the 602 Club, make sure you're subscribed. That way, as soon as I drop the show, you get it. You can find us on Twitter, at Trek FM. 
We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm, where you can check out everything that we're doing. We get all the shows posted there. If you want to get more in-depth with the fans of the Trek FM network and talk about the shows, talk about everything that we're talking about here on Trek FM, you'll want to go to the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group. That is on Facebook as well. Now, to get there, maybe you're on Facebook. Type Babel into the search field, the Babel Conference, or go over to the website at trek.fm. Any of the show pages that you check out, you'll see a little button, a little button there. It says discussion. Hit that. It'll bring you over to the group. And maybe you would like to send us an email. Love getting emails on the show, what you think, uh, maybe ideas you might have for the upcoming new year as we're recording this. We're right before uh, the end of 2018 into 2019. So uh, go over to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that'll come to me the hosts that were on with me that week and we can talk to you about whatever it is that you thought was interesting now guys we're all similar aged uh in the sense that you know this is a movie that we all grew up with and so i wanted to ask you what your first flight was uh what was the first time that you saw this movie and i I kind of wanted to know just what was the impact that it had on you at that age uh, I was, uh, I don't remember the exact age, but I know that it was VHS. Uh, and I saw it in short order before seeing Superman two on VHS. And, um, so the two are sort of inextricably linked. Uh, and so, but basically that's my first memory. The strongest memory I have of it are two things. One is being absolutely enraptured with the title sequence. Just it was the coolest thing seeing the the letters come out. Like I, I was like, wow, this is so cool. And, you know, just loving it overall and everything. And also one time when uh, my two older cousins, my brother and myself snuck away to watch it. Um, long story short, we were where we were not supposed to be. And one of my older cousins got a migraine while watching it and we had to call for help. And uh, got all busted for not being where we were supposed to be. So uh, those are my two primary memories of seeing Superman at a young age on VHS. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, ain't it? Yeah, that's different. A migraine Superman. Um, (laughs) So for me, it was at the theater. I was 11 years old, a new 11 years old, because I only been 11 for like a month and a half at that. No, it was I was. 11 and two months old anyway uh yeah so 1978 december i remember i didn't see it the opening weekend but i remember seeing the ads for it and the ads used to always tout you will believe a man could fly and i remember going to school the weekend after it came out and i remember kids talking about it and this girl said to me have you seen the movie yet and i said no i haven't seen it yet and she said well it's really good um I think, well, you know, you know what? You can really believe a man could fly. It's true. You will be able to believe it because we never really seen special effects like that before. I mean, we had Star Wars the year before and Close Encounters and now this, but not where we're seeing somebody flying. We had the old Superman serials and the TV series and this really looked believable. So I remember going to see it and like you, John, the title sequence blew me away which I've learned since that that wasn't the original intent that was, was used in the trailers and they got such a great reaction from it. They decided to use that in the movie. And, um, 
it affected me just as much as Star Wars did the year before. I became a huge Superman fan. I subscribed to every title that DC had Superman in, from DC Comics Presents to Action Comics to Justice League, whatever. I mean, if it was Superman, I was there. And uh, and I'm not as big of a fan. In, I'm not into Superman like I was back then. But yeah, it was. I, I was as much into Superman then as I was Star Wars. Uh, for me, I'm a little bit more like John, because when this movie came out, I wouldn't be born for another seven months. And so when I discovered Superman, uh, it was on VHS, and it was around the same time that I was discovering Star Wars, Indiana Jones, uh, Star Trek, you know, all of these things I was discovering at the same time. And so Superman, which is kind of funny that, you know, four of those... Uh, all have to do with John Williams. So maybe it has something to do with being, uh, you know, linked together. Uh, But it was never a movie. I I don't know if it ever had the same impact on me in this, that it did on other people in the sense like that it became my favorite movie or anything. But Superman is my favorite character in comic book lore. Uh, and he's all over my house, you know, like I'm wearing a Superman t-shirt now. Uh, Superman is, is just my favorite character, and uh, there was something about him that I uh, absolutely love. And so I, I do think that you could probably chart that all the way back to there had to have been something about this movie. I don't remember what it was, honestly. I can't tell you. But something just stuck in my brain, Superman, and, you know, when I got into comics, you know, he was the character that I read first and then branched out. But it's always been Superman. Now, I mean, I, and, and then, too, it was funny because, you know, I ended up growing up and like uh, Batman. They made all these Batman movies, but they never made another Superman movie. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, if part of that was that, you know, we'd all seen Superman 4 and we were like, oh, I don't know if I ever want to see it another Superman movie again. No, that, that um, definitely had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, well, and, but I just mean in my mind, I, I think, I think there's a part of like what I thought of is, is the, 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 those Superman films that kind of all got cobbled together with one through four. Um, because, you know, there's, I, I think that's just part of it for me. And so, um, but yeah, it, it definitely left some kind of mark because Superman himself, the character, became my favorite character. And I, I thought it was so interesting because when you look at the the way that this movie was put together, it seems to start off like you've got like Mario Puzo writing the script, you know, which, you know, done The Godfather. So that seems like a great start. Um, but then when you really start to peel back all the layers, like it's a mess. And I thought one of the most fascinating things is that they wanted Spielberg actually to direct the movie. Uh, and they decide to wait and to see how his big fish movie opens. Um, and by the time that they were going to ask him, because it is super successful, he's already going to do uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I was reading too that actually Guy Hamilton, the, the Bond director, had been hired for a while to direct this film. So it could have gone in some very interesting directions with either of those two people doing it than Richard Donner, which I think is fascinating that, you know, we had this whole all we have all this behind the scenes stuff that happens with this movie. 
Well, I think that, uh, you know, you, you touched on Puzo and, and sort of the, the script development and everything. And uh, no small part of that, I, I, I definitely think, has to do with the intent of the, the Salkinds as producers. Um, and previous to this, I, I think that definitely what Donner brought to the table that was very important for this film working. And I'm not saying anything original here. Like, seriously, I think... By this point with Superman, the movie, all of us are standing on the shoulders of giants and, you know, like these, this is a movie that has been looked at time and again, but, you know, it is true that comic book properties were all very, you know, they're, they're kids stuff, you know, and you, you look at the, the bat, the first forebear is Batman and, uh, you know, the, the Adam West Batman really. And so there's definitely more of a, uh, a co- what we see in Superman's uh, two through four is much closer to what the Salkinds had in mind. And it was really, I, I think it's very key that Donner was the one directing because he seems to have been the one to say, no, this is, you know, like that whole tagline, you'll believe a man can fly. This isn't a joke. You know, there are funny moments, there's humor of the time, there's all of that type of stuff, but Superman himself is not a joke. He's real, and they knew that they had to sell him for this to work, and I think Donner has a very large hand in that. Yeah, they knew that he was American institution and treated him that way. Just as if you were making a movie about Abraham Lincoln... Now, yeah, it wouldn't be as funny at times and some humorous things, and this is totally different, but I mean, this is a respectful character, one that people really idolized and looked as all-American. I mean, he's now an international character, but, you know, in his initial uh, publication of comics, he was very much, you know, the American way, the American hero, and he was treated as such by Donner. And you're right. Those next movies treated it more like a joke. Not, I'm not just Superman himself, but all the characters and the, and the situations. And I don't even know if they were also looking at that as saying, well, we have to be a little campy or whatever because it's comics and we want to appeal to kids. And as a kid watching these movies, it was more of the more serious tone that appealed to me more than the campiness and, and comedy that came from the other movies. I think it's uh, it's it's really interesting because I think you can very much tell where uh, where Donner has the strongest hand in the movie, and where maybe his hand starts to slip from having as much control over what you get. Because I think, to me, the beginning of the movie. Um, has has exactly what you guys are talking about, but as you get towards the end of the movie, I feel like that falls away, and it becomes much more campy and kind of silly. And honestly, I would say that it, it becomes exactly what you guys are talking about. Like there, there's a much more camp feel to the film, especially with Lex and and you know Miss Tessmacher and you know Otis, their whole plan, the way it all comes together. Um, I think, let me put it this way. The moment you get to Metropolis, to me, the entire movie shifts from being something that's kind of reverential and, and, and very, I think, 
wonderfully serious, but also a just kind of like joyfully uh, explorative of, of what it means to like, you know, Superman coming into his powers and everything. And then you get to the, to the Metropolis and the rest of the movie. And I think it definitely shifts in tone for me. Um, and I, I, I think there it's, it's the tale. It's a tale of two movies. I, I, I can't agree with that because the, the thread through all of this is Superman himself and while there is, there's admittedly humor, I mean, it's almost like, even though the movie doesn't come out for some time from when this does, it's what I would call the return of the Jedi principle. There's an escape valve with the Ewoks. There's a, a lighter element to that. But when you really look at what's going on, you know, there's a very, you know, serious thread through everything. Is Otis comic relief? Yeah, he absolutely is. But at the same time, it's it is a comedy uh you know it's an it's an opportunity for comedy to entertain the audience i mean like it's at no like i don't see this being campy there's definitely humor and otis himself is you know a a walking uh you know comic character and everything but at the same time, I don't see Metropolis itself being campy, and I don't see, I mean, you know, the, the fact that they tap into, um, you know, uh, atomic weaponry, that's like a, you know, it's it's the middle of the Cold War. Everybody's, that's that's on everybody's mind. That's exactly what a supervillain would, would go try to do. Uh, and I think uh, the thing that, for me, that I... I... You know, even John Williams, when I was watching him talk about the music for Superman, he called the movie kind of theatrical camp. And I completely agree, especially by the time that you get to Metropolis. I I think that the movie becomes quite campy. And part of that has to do with a lot of the things that happen, whether it's the flying sequence or whether it's just the way that the plan comes together for Lex and, uh, you know, his buffoons. Uh, the way they pull it off is is ridiculous uh, and very campy. Um, I I do think that you are absolutely right, though. I do think that the the Superman character himself is the one thing that is not campy throughout the the film. I think that the way Chris Reeves plays him, and I think the fact that his through line that is the that is the thing that is not that way and i think that's good because without that i think the movie would have been completely a camp uh routine but it's not because you have him who is earnestly taking the role and who he is and what he represents very seriously he does it in a fun way but i also think that there's a reverence there for the character and and just the way it's played to bring him to life in a way that is not campy i think a lot of the things around him, especially once you get to Metropolis, become that way. Um, and it's the first half of the movie that I love the most, whereas it's the second half of the movie that it's like it just goes off the rails for me. So I'm kind of in between on this. Um, I, I don't think of this movie as being campy. I think of two, three, and four as being campy movies. I do see there's some campy elements in this film, but I look at this film as being almost three, maybe four different films because when we're in Krypton, Krypton, it's very sci-fi. Oh, you mean uh, excuse me, Krypton. Y- yeah, you mean we, Krypton. We were on Krypton. 
I'm yeah. sorry, Marlo. <laughs> Krypton. <laughs> so when we're on Krypton, Krypton, uh, it's very much a science fiction movie. Next thing, all of a sudden, we have Kal-El come to Earth, and now it feels very Norman Rockwell. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, totally different from what we just saw on Krypton or Krypton. And then, you know, and and then we kind of get back to a bit of that sci-fi element when it gives us the Fortress of Solitude. When we get to Metropolis, I don't have a problem with that. I actually love the par- first part of the whole Metropolis part of the movie, because at this part, all of a sudden, I didn't feel like it was campy, but it was just more of how it seems like the world and, of course, in the city, everybody's kind of messed up. People have issues. I mean, we got this guy from the 50s who now all of a sudden ends up in the late 70s and things are screwed up. And I feel like we're finding humor in ourselves at that time and what society is like through the eyes of Clark, who seems to have his act together and is probably the smartest person in the room. It falls apart for me when we start to get to Lex and Otis and that whole missile thing. And that's when I start to actually even lose interest. Uh, I, that, that's, that's a different discussion. But what I, what I want to absolutely uh, be with you on is that there is, you, you could call it sort of the Fargo element. To Clark slash Superman, the city is a a strange, bizarre place. It really is. Country boy comes to the big city and it's this big, overwhelming, noisy place, a metropolis where everybody's nuts. Like what, you know, what's going on? And of course, metropolis is, you know, <laughs> the background plates are New York and, you know, the, and they're filming in New York and stuff like that. Metropolis was supposed to represent New York in the comics and, um, you know, just as Gotham was, but like there is, I, I definitely think, uh, Bruce, you're, you're spot on with with that interpretation where, you know, Clark is the grounded one and the world's gone nuts. Like we're seeing that sort of juxtaposition of, you know, that the breadbasket upbringing in into the city life. Right. He's a fish out of yeah. water. Yeah. Uh, now, in, in terms of no, that would be Aquaman. Yes. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's just next week. Bruce. Yeah. This might lead to the next show. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but no, I think that I think the way you broke it down, though, Bruce, is perfect, and and I think that gives us a good time to kind of talk about the movie then in segments because we kind of went all over the place there and oh, just yeah. kind of like, but but just fine. I mean, it creates for uh, I mean, and we all have a, a a different point of view, which I think is making this a great conversation. But let's kind of look at it in those segments that you broke it down in because I think you're absolutely right in that uh, and to call that out. Even Donner, uh, our good friend, uh, Sean Eastridge, I'm going to plug his podcast. Uh, he uh, got a chance to interview Donner and uh, over on Missing Frames. And uh, they talked about this idea that there is this kind of segmented nature to the film and that it specifically has even a different look and a different feel on purpose. And I think it was so interesting because when you're creating Krypton, Krypton is very different, even in its pronunciation uh, by uh, Marlon Brando, uh, than it was ever depicted in the comics. And so um, everybody now thinks of Krypton as being this, this, you know, kind of like weird ice or like, you know, uh, crystal planet. But this is something that they completely introduce in this film mm-hmm. that had never been seen before in the comics 
and yet now it has uh, just a massive uh, following, and and we all kind of immediately think of the Fortress of Solitude, you know, as being this weird ice palace with crystals. Um, what do you guys think of this? Because um, it is something that really only existed in the movies up to this point, and then even when John Byrne came in and redid Superman, um, his Man of Steel run. Krypton was very different there. It was much more like the Krypton that we kind of see um, portrayed in the show Krypton in like uh, the version of, of, of Man of Steel that Zack Snyder did pulls very heavily from that idea, a lot of the ideas there. Um, and so I don't know, what do you guys think of this Krypton and its depiction? Because it doesn't, what, what's most interesting to me is it doesn't feel like a place that anybody would actually want to live. It feels like, uh, and it and it feels very two thousand one, which makes sense since that movie had just come out. Well, uh, and the director of photography is the same one, Jeffrey Unsworth. And right with, with Krypton, what I think is beautiful about it, besides the absolutely magnificent set design, and you know the the reflective tape and camera tricks and all of those sorts of things that they do, is the fact that it gives this alien technology without and this alien planet without some sort of hook for me to grab onto it and say, oh, well, that's not how something like that would work. That's not how this, like, it all looks like magic. And so as a result, there's nothing for me, regardless of what age I am. It, if anything, I would say that's the greatest strength of so much in this movie is it is the way that our inner child likes to think until we drum it out of ourselves if, if that ever tragically happens. But like, you know, there's no reason a planet can't just be, a, it's a bunch of crystals and hula hoops keep you in prison and, you know, big projected heads pronounce guilt. And it's why, how does it work? Who cares? It just looks cool. Okay, sure. Works yeah, for me. I, I agree because when I watched the movie recently, I was thinking how the, it doesn't feel dated to me. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you would see futuristic settings in movies at that time, or even in the eighties, you know, you can watch the Bass star Galactica from the seventies and it looks like it's from the seventies and such. And I mean, there's probably some to Krypton in this that, that looks maybe late seventies, but it does look very alien and different that it didn't feel dated like, oh, that looks like a 1970s look at the future or another planet. Because like you're saying, Matt, about the comics, it's a different look than what you saw in the comics. And what right. is funny to me is my daughter, who is now 17, she's a big superhero movie, and she hadn't watched this movie since she was much younger. And so she watched it with me. And at the end, she says, wow, I really love that movie because it's so true to the comics. And she was commenting about not just Krypton, but the Fortress of Solitude and Superman's outfit and everything, his suit, you know, and how that's what is in the comics. And I didn't go on into it, but it's like, well, really, the movie started to inspire things in the comics. You know, she saw it after because I remember in the 70s. Yeah. Krypton looked actually more like a 1950s version of the future or another planet than what we saw yeah. in this. But it's funny, they have no furniture on Krypton. So I don't even know if Kryptonians can sit. 
<laughs> Apparently not. Well, could could you sit in that, you know, outfit, you know? I no. It, um, I, I do agree with you guys. I think that you make a really good point in the sense that they create a, a sense of this place where you never ask yourself, how does that work? Um, and, and that's a good thing. I do think that it's too austere so that it doesn't make me feel anything when it's destroyed. I think that's the thing that um, I do think is missing from this section where uh, you... I feel like you want to feel like you're losing something other than just, you know, Jarrell, his wife, and, and you know, Clark's parents, uh, you know, Kal-El's parents. I feel like you want to, to really miss Jarrell and Laura and, and the planet itself. Like, the, the we're losing something in the universe. Um, and it doesn't really seem... This doesn't add that for me. But I do think, you know... When you look at the Silver Age comics, which uh, a, a lot of this movie pulls from, even, I mean, Clark is specifically in a very, uh, he is a Silver Age Superman uh, in that, that, that is exactly what the uniform looks like that he's wearing. Um, and even a lot of, I would say, the rest of the movie maybe feels like that. But I think that they, they try to do something here, and I think it works mostly well and i think part of that is just the establishing shot that they have as you come in on krypton you know and the dome opens and you know you've got the council there and and it creates uh, i don't know the one thing they definitely do is they do not make this place feel welcoming um (laughs) um so that's why i said furniture because it really doesn't feel like a lived-in universe right no you're right yeah yeah but at at the same time it contributes to the alien feel like the, the I mean, look, we, we've got a bunch of people walking around and somebody has a, an English S on their chest, you know, like, ah, okay. Like it, it, the austerity of it, I think very much is necessary to convey that extremely alien sort of concept. I, I mean, I, I, I guess I get what you're saying, but like, the you know in terms of the emotional impact of it no i don't feel this great um tragic you know heart-wrenching moment when krypton dies but i come to understand the impact of its loss through the character of superman later and that is you know so it, it becomes more important as everything advances, as it were. What did you guys think of Marlon Brando as Jarrell? I, I mean, it's fine. You know, yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he, I, you know, I know there was some stat that he was the highest per word actor in film history when the yes. final cut came out of this film. Now, they've since had revised you know, a revised cut and all of that stuff. But like when the film came out, like somebody did the math and it was something absolutely obscene what he was paid. But that's, that's Brando. Uh, If you're asking, do I think he brought any, uh, I don't know, what's a trendy word? Gravitas to the character? Sure. You know, Brando conveyed, uh, you know, an important, intelligent presence. Do I think that it had to be Marlon Brando that, only Marlon Brando could convey that? Probably not. But at the same time, he does a fine job. I believe in his Durrell. Yeah, it's not 
it's not a performance that I would say, oh, you know, if you want to see Marlon Brando, go right. see Superman. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Forget Streetcar Named Desire. Go see Superman. Yeah. Yeah. Forget the Godfather. Yeah. You don't oh. need any of those, you know. It's good, uh, but it's not. Yeah. I mean, there isn't uh, the a whole lot front, for me to yeah there's just not a whole and he can't sit down either so i mean there's just not a whole lot for him in this this movie to do but yeah i think it's a fine performance but not you know not a breaking performance i said just give me a chair i'm gonna make him an offer to camera if you the chairs were always just off camera that's there you go there's your in-universe explanation yeah I completely agree with you, both of you, though. I, I, I think that he does the, the job adequately, and he does what the, the role needs him to do. Um, and so, and I, you know, it's interesting, too. You know, we didn't really talk about when they're putting this movie together, but the fact that they are, they were shooting the movies together, and so they really are setting up the second movie at the very beginning of this movie, which is Zod. Um, yes. And so you have this whole, like, it, it, it creates... Um, this sense that there is this whole part of this movie that's happening that doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movie, but it is going to be important for the second part of the movie. But the way that they do it, it it, it just gives you a sense of who this Darrell character is more than anything else. And so it works very well to open the film like that. Yes, I completely agree. Completely agree. Yes, and I love the crystals going back to kind of what John said, it's not like we're seeing some weird sci-fi device that, you know, what, I mean, it's just, you know, all your data is held in a crystal. And I just think about nowadays where we have data that's just on a thumb drive, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just love the idea that, you know, an essence of a being that, you know, can project himself later to Clark and, and all this information is all just held in crystals to me that, that I love that part. I, I, it never really, it never was anything that meant a lot to me before, but this time watching it, I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, I've never been a huge fan of the crystalline technology because it just seems really, I don't know. I, I just never It's never been my favorite thing in the Superman lore uh, is, is the crystalline technology. And what's weird is, is how um, the comics have kind of used both. Um, they've used kind of the, the John Byrne look with the crystalline technology. So you have a combination. And I think to me that works a little bit better. Um, mainly, but just because it makes Kryptonian things feel, um, slightly, like as we we're talking about homey, like when you see in the comics, Clark's Fortress of Solitude, it doesn't feel so austere and like you wouldn't want to live there, you know, like, and, and that's the one thing I think that, by having Krypton feel so austere, it's like people don't actually live here. And I think that's the thing you need to, I would have loved to have more of, but it, it, it's such a small part of the movie that it, it doesn't matter. Like you don't, you can't spend more time there. No, you should um, have just had a puppy. So. That would have helped. <laughs> a crystal puppy. <laughs> a crystal puppy. Yes. yes. You know, like uh, the Volpex on uh, the last Jedi. So yeah, exactly. There you go. There's your tie into the universes. There you, go. there you go. Superman exists in Star Wars, guys. Um, Smallville, I think, is absolutely my favorite part of this movie. I think this is the part of the movie where everything Donner does with the character and everything Donner does with the time period, obviously, being the 50s. I just feel like he nails everything he's going for, uh, uh, you know, with Ma and Pa Kent uh, and... Um, Clark struggles and him 
you know, coming face to face with what is supposed to be the the biggest lesson of his life up to that point, which is he can't save everyone when his father dies. Like, I think this whole section of the movie is really, really, really good. And and actually, it, I, yeah, it is my favorite part of the film. Yeah, I uh, I, I can't blame you. Um, yeah, Smallville is special, but there's uh, the the scene, the final scene with Pa Kent um, and the funeral and everything. I uh, uh, it, it's it's such an incredibly played scene, uh, and Glenn Ford is just magnificent as Pa Kent, and there's so much about him that is believable and kind like you can see this person producing the Clark Kent slash Superman we get later in the movie we can see Pa Kent's influence as basically a straight line and I think that his uh his death scene is played so beautifully um like I can't, I can't make it through that scene without crying. Like sometimes, very, very much. Like it, it just, it's, it's such an incredibly powerful and moving moment about, and you know, just, it, it's the way life happens. You know, you're going along, everything's great, and then oh no, and you're done. And it's like it's it has this just poetic simplicity to it, and having that be the driver that has you know Clark go out and find himself and figure out who he really is i think it's just a, a it's such a magnificent point uh in the film absolutely wonderful yeah i would also say that the smallville section of this movie is my favorite and maybe even closely tied to the early parts of the metropolis stuff but um yeah the death scene is always very emotional for me, but at the same time, I always have to laugh when I see the Cheerios box because it's such a big product placement in the way it's held and put on the table. But um, hey, man, I still love Cheerios. I, I don't know what you're talking I about. I do. Too. I know you do. You you bought Cheerios when you were at my house. Um, That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I got you hooked on one of them. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, but also to talk about another scene when uh, Clark is at the football field at school. And he has to stack the shoulder pads and the helmets. And then he's talking to Lana and then they knock things over. And, you know, basically he's getting picked on and, and he hit, then they leave and he kicks the football and, and runs home. And the thing I like about that scene, and I think I really liked as a kid is, you know, there were times that, you know, I had been picked on or things aren't going my way. And, and sometimes you just, you know, you're probably more than what you're projecting to people and they don't realize it. And you just want to kind of break out and be that Superman and say, look, there is more to me than, you know, and that's why I always felt like I could relate to with Clark that, you know, they don't know who he really is. And yet at the same time, he can't share that. And I always loved that scene. And I always loved the Clark character because of that. And that was one thing I liked about the Smallville series. I felt that, the Smallville series did a really good job portraying Smallville in the best way that seen since this movie. And uh, believe me, because Superboy, that series in the late 80s, oh, no, that oh. was silly. And I, I just <laughs> yeah. recently bought the DVDs just to laugh at it. <laughs> <laughs> Can't blame you. 
<laughs> it's um, it is really interesting because I uh, one of the things that I kind of struggled with in the movie watching it again was, you know, the lesson of kind of learning when Paul dies. You know, he he says to Ma that all of these powers and I couldn't save him, and and this lesson of learning that he he can't save everyone. Like there will be people he cannot save, and that has to be okay. Um, one because he can't be everywhere at once either, you know. Um, but I struggled with that idea because then at the end of the movie, when he reverses time and he saves Lois, it kind of seems to be a slap in the face to that lesson, which is no, I will use my powers to do something that's completely unnatural for this planet and save a woman I really just met, even though I'm madly in love with now. Um, and it just it's it seems very I was just watching it and it was frustrating because it seems very contradictory because it's such a wonderful message for Superman. Like that is the most important message for Superman, right? Which is I can't save everyone. So I need to I need to find a way, even with all that I can do to to learn to be okay with that. Even even his own father, right? Um adopted father. And yet then at the end of the movie, he just kind of throws that away and and does this thing that I, you know, bothers me. Well, the two things. One is that, uh, you know, he just, you know, badly felt, well, he's spending time with her as Clark and, he, and Superman and everything. And the whirlwind romance is a staple of cinema and even life. Sometimes whirlwind romances happen in terms of the ending. Any, I guess, seeming incongruity with it uh, probably stems from the fact that uh, this wasn't what the ending was supposed to be in this one. Basically, they had to move quickly and they had to take the ending of two and move it forward to the ending of one so they could meet a release date that the Salkinds wanted. And like it was all, you know, Donner had objections to it and everything like that. But, you know. Which makes sense because it, it like you said, it kind of feels incongruous with well, the rest of the film. I I've never I mean, everybody understands that turning a planet backwards isn't going to reverse time. But well, yes. you know, it, all it's going to do is just make things worse, actually. Oh, this is news but, to me. Okay. Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry, Bruce. Yeah, Bruce, to... if you turn the Earth back like that, actually, you're just going to create tidal waves that would probably kill just about everyone. Well, I mean, never mind the fact they don't even address the asteroids and the Lagrange points that would plummet down and destroy the poles and therefore <laughs> crack the planet in half. Uh, or what's yeah, the influence? Way to go, on, Superman! Or what's the influence on the moon? For Pete's sake, does the moon keep traveling? Does the moon come back? Does the moon? Pl- I mean, but at the same time, and this is going to sound. Uh, like more of a dodge than it is. There's also a, there's a different sensibility, I guess, about this in that while we all agree that at Donner's word, verisimilitude is what you, you have to make the audience believe, sell them on the truth of it. There's still uh, that, that, understanding that you're dealing with something that is a uh, you know at its core uh, you know a quote-unquote comic book movie you know like I I know that there's no infinity gauntlet but I'll fine I'll buy into it as long as you sell me on the rest of it sort of thing and I think that you can make definitely an allowance for him 
you know, moving the earth to save Lois because that is that goes just along with the whirlwind romance and the romantic arcs that, you know, that, that inspire, you know, this sort of story, you know, the, the night saving the princess sort of thing is that all bets are off when love is in the mix sort of thing. So that's why I can, you know, be okay with and go along with it is this big, fiery, passionate love that he has that he's found and that makes us do things that we right. are that are more than we thought we could do or that might not be the best call, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. And I agree. And, and just to add to that, there's, I think at least three times we hear Brando uh, say the line that, you know, you can't change history or you shouldn't change history, something to that effect, which right. in a sense he's doing by rewinding time. So it goes against what Jorel's telling him. It goes against, you know, human nature and what his adoptive father is always, you know, like, you know, you've got these powers, you have to protect them. And even though you, he couldn't save his adoptive father from dying, having these powers, he has certain restrictions. And yeah, because of love, he's willing to break those rules and those bonds and those restrictions for the love of a woman he met just five days ago. I'm sorry. I, I just want to say before we beat up too much on like the whole, I, she, he just met her five days ago. I always go back first date with my wife. I walked out of the, the subway station. I called up a friend of mine and I said, I've met the woman I'm going to marry. I knew at that moment it's struck by the thunderbolt. So it's, it's fine by me. And I'm not discounting that at all. I do think I, I will say for me, that I don't feel like the movie does a great job personally for me to justify the ending that they give us. Um, but I also, I personally think it harms the character of Superman to make him do that just for Lois. Like Lois is the, the one that he does that for instead of everybody else that was going to die. Like it, it, you know, but he'd it, already it, saved. Bought, it just, it, it really, it, it, it makes Superman seem really kind of petty and selfish if you ask me no, I agree like with no, that. But just because the one person that died well i'm gonna reverse time and like damn the consequences basically of that just for one person it that doesn't bother not, me but, but it, i agree with that yeah but at least he had gone around and we saw him going around and like saving the kids on the school bus and repairing the san andreas fault and but when he went back in time stuff. he didn't save the school bus so he had time to save lois Maybe. Yeah, well, and, no, and, no, okay, no, no, so no. So let's just get to that because I don't I, get, seriously. okay, let's get to the ending because I don't understand. We'll, we'll talk, we'll finish talking about the rest of it because we're already there. I don't understand the ending. It doesn't make any sense. So he reverses time. Does that mean he has to go back and do everything he did before? No. He, he just goes, does it faster goes, this time? He, no, yes, he, he goes did. back. He goes back just far enough to get Lois and remove her before the, the crack opens. Right. But what I, but my point is, all that other S still happens. He, okay, all the stuff happens. He saves everybody. Lois is the one person he can't save, right? So right, all bets go part. off. He turns it back to just a moment before, because there's time between where he saves everybody else and repairs the fault and gets to Lois. And then he turns everything back, et cetera. And, but not so far back that the bomb hasn't gone off. He's all of that stuff. If and you so want, what you're telling me is it's just bad editing. <laughs> okay. You take it up with Stuart Baird. Um, okay. I think I would because it's bad editing because it doesn't make sense. 
Yeah, there is, but see, I mean, it makes sense when you just explain it like that. But there needs to be then a shot that shows you every like it, he. What should have been done then is to show you him having fixed everything else and being able to. I mean, have the time to do that because otherwise, it just feels like he saved Lois and like well, what the heck happened to everybody else? He he had well anyway. I what I will what I will say is that there's. Nothing I can like, nothing I could say beyond that to to address your concerns, as it were. Except no, to say no, that we, what you already, says is, said is completely logical and it makes sense. I just feel like the movie doesn't tell me that well enough. No, I agree because again, I, I agree because when I watched this with my daughter when it was done, that was one of the first things she said. She was saying the same thing you're saying, Matt. It's like, wait, how was he able to save? Like, what happened with the other stuff? Did that even happen, or what? You know, did he? You know, and I then John, like you, were saying the same thing. Like, I think he was doing all those other things, or he came right at that moment. I think it would have worked as you see him turning the planet around backwards we're seeing quick shots of everything going backwards and the dam going back together and 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 the missiles not striking or whatever it would have been better i think once he had the world go back around again maybe you show those again but it's almost like in a fast forward type of motion as if he's working quicker to repair the dam and throw you know throw the rocks down to stop the water and takes off and boom we get to lois almost in that same kind of play but you know, just a little faster because I like to believe that I don't know when he stopped the earth, but I like to believe that maybe he went back, saved the school bus, did the dam, but he was moving faster because he knew where to go and it gave him time to get to Lois and prevent the crack in the, in the road. I, I will also throw out that I highly doubt um, anybody in 1978, at least was spending as much time thinking about the theoretical <laughs> quantum mechanics of time travel um that was go except for probably that one probably a young neil degrasse tyson sitting in the audience saying well you know it wouldn't really and well then his, actually and then his lunch money was taken <laughs> and he was very lonely walking home because he didn't even have enough money to get the bus afterwards well and also consider when superman returns to save lois is there the other superman that was there before See, that's a good question. Yeah, no, that's so what happens? Questions. What happens is accidentally Kyle Reese is sent back to. This is what triggers oh, Skynet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now <laughs> that's when. That, okay, that's when that happens. Okay, that makes so much sense. Krypton is right. Krypton is right near crate, and now, <laughs> now, Terminator is part of the Superman movie universe. Everything comes. I like together. it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys. Uh, okay, so we got that ending. That part of the ending down. What did you guys think about when he travels north, goes to the fortress, and kind of goes to, I guess, Kryptonian boarding school for 12 years uh, to learn how to use his powers and, of course, you know, get this really snazzy suit, too? It seems to go a little long, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like it because I like that the Fortress of Solitude looks like Krypton. I think it's kind of weird that he goes to basically the North Pole, but it's isolated, so that makes sense to me. I would have liked to see that, you know, when he was in the Arctic, when he was breathing, you'd see his breath because it's cold, but it looked so much in studio, so it didn't seem all that real to me. But I and I liked him talking to Jor-El. I just felt like it just went on a little too long, but that's my opinion. Yeah, I, I'm fine with it. I mean, in terms of the breath, like unless you're going to do the John Carpenter 
you know, turn the studio into a meat locker sort of thing. <laughs> like seriously, yeah. with, with the thing, he turned the studio into a meat locker. And then, you know, with this, I can definitely see a production company saying, we're shooting here for like two days, guys. We're, we're, we're not right. doing that. Um, although, you know, in the modern age with uh, like James Cameron putting breath on, you know, in Titanic, I think that was the first time. Yeah. That I can recall them that doing digital that. breath. Yeah, where they added the digital breath because they knew that people would be able to tell it wasn't cold or whatever. Um, you know, I think that the Jarrell stuff, I I can understand somebody saying, you know, it 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 it's a little long. I I don't have that impression. I think that it's so fascinating with the I I guess arguably three different cuts that they've released. Uh, the and that that TV cut was never meant to be. That that's not like an officially say like that. That was that was ad revenue cut basically, but um, I always found it so much fun that there was enough footage of Brando that they could then use him and reconstruct him for Superman Returns, and it was all stuff we hadn't seen before but had been shot in 1978, which I yes. thought was just wonderful. Um, but yeah, you know, any make Brando earn the paycheck, have him on screen as long as you can. You know, I think the thing that it does is what you were talking about earlier, Bruce, is that this kind of explains why you stunts Clark's development in the sense of like he's stuck being somebody who feels like he came out of the 1950s. So when he arrives in the 70s, he feels like that person out of time because he has been out of time. Literally, he's he's been on this, you know, esoteric journey with his father, you know, his his Kryptonian father, learning all of these things uh, and learning how to hone his powers, how to use his powers and everything. I think, you know, it's a good way to make that happen. So you do have a character who comes back and says the word swell when nobody said swell in like, you know, 20 years. Um, it, it just, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think they, they it's internally consistent. It just make it, it's a great idea. Um, and it's the thing that um, I think is really interesting because, say, when you, you know, pull that idea out of something like Man of Steel, where he doesn't have that, it you you get a different character, you know. So I, I think this was a good thing to add in here to legitimize who Clark is when he gets to Metropolis, which is somebody who's not like everybody else. Um, he really does feel like a. Uh, uh, you know, a relic of the past when it comes to his behavior, how he treats people, all of those things. And like you said earlier, Bruce, which I thought was really smart, it's it's that thing that's where they're commenting then on maybe what we've lost in that time period through Superman by somebody who just treats people with decency and respect and all those things that were slowly slipping away even then. Well, and, and the thing is, you, you have to acknowledge that that sort of thing also plays along with, you know, the seventies was all about fifties nostalgia and the eighties was all about sixties nostalgia. And the nineties was all about seventies nostalgia. Like it, it's, it's that sort of looking back thing, you know, happy days is a seventies show and um, you know, Greece and stuff like that. There, there's a look back toward the fifties, but Superman of those works mentioned isn't making fun of the values of that time period so much as, you know, to your point, Matt, talking about how, oh, well, the world's changed. And it sort of says, yeah, but 
you know, Clark is a pretty great guy. Did we change too much? Is there something we need to recapture from that time period that's, you know, good and pure and wholesome? And especially you look at, you know, you look at New York, the, you know, the cultural center, uh, you know, of the country, especially in the, you know, looked at in the 1970s as such. And you look at what was going on there. I could completely understand people looking back and be like, ah, maybe yeah. we're a little too far gone here, guys. Need to, you know, Studio 54 is a little much, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, but I, I think it's a factor of time, but it's also a factor of place because it, it also is a difference between coming from a small town out somewhere sure. in the Great Plains or the Midwest and going to the Northeast metropolis big city. I mean, this could have easily worked just as well if Clark grew up on a farm in the 70s and sure. then immediately, immediately leaves Smallville and ends up in Metropolis and we would have probably the same kind of play in this, you know? Yeah. Oh, oh, sure. The the culture shock would be, you know, just as pronounced. Absolutely. Absolutely. Getting to Metropolis, and this is the part where we get, you know, the the big review of Superman and, you know, Chris Reeve getting to play the the, the duality of Clark versus Superman. Um, and, I, you know, I think that getting a chance to watch the film again, I think he does a, a very good job playing the role and what's interesting is that there's um there's a there's something about the way he plays Superman where there's a genuineness to him but there's also a bit of snark to Snooper, Superman which is kind of fun like and it's not like super mean snark but it's like there there's a slight bit of snarkiness to him every once in a while and it's just it's it's good. I think he does a very good job of playing the different roles. I mean, even in, you know when he's in Lois's apartment and he takes off his glasses and he straightens up, you know, you get that visual representation of how much he's affected his posture mm -hmm. and the way that he's played the character. And I think if anything works in this movie, it's it's Christopher Reeve playing Superman. I think he brings uh, an effortlessness to playing this role, which I think is fa fascinating. Uh, because it's not an easy thing to do, especially with all he was required to do athletically with trying to do the flying scenes and all that stuff. It would have been exhausting. Um, I also thought it was really funny how he tells Lois that he always tells the truth while he's telling everyone the biggest lie, which I thought was kind of funny because, yeah. you know, he's lying to everybody that he's not Clark Kent. So it's like he's the world's biggest liar who always tells the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Landrew would explode. Uh, exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Hey, wait a minute. There you go. <laughs> Landrew, Superman is Clark Kent. Superman always tells the truth. Superman never tells anybody he's Clark Kent. Does not compute. Boom. Done. <laughs> <laughs> but what did you guys, I mean, getting a chance to kind of go back and watch this again, was there anything that stuck out to you just about the performance that Reeve gives? I it I think you know you're right the authenticity at no point at any point while I'm watching this regardless of what age I've come back and revisited it or anything like that I have never questioned his performance I've never said oh that's Christopher Reeve playing he's Superman done sold finished that is that is it and I think that's uh, 
you know, it's an amazing testament. It's it's an absolutely wonderful performance. And I, you know, as much as I agree with the word effortless, he does make it look effortless, but he makes it look effortless because he's he was just so talented. He was such a great talent. And, um, you know, you just have to look at some of his other work to know, you know, what tremendous skill he had that made it possible for him to sell this to everybody from age, you know, six to a hundred even younger than six, every kid all the way up to the oldest adult believed Christopher Reeve was Superman, period. Absolutely. I would also think that it's amazing how a man with that build and height can play Clark, but yet still make him feel small. I mean, that meek way of playing Clark and slouching and touching the glasses and such. I mean, if you really look at the other characters around him, you would think those characters would look up at him and say, gosh, this guy's a big, you know, tough looking guy because he's so tall and he's, he's really well built, but just the way his body movement works, it makes the character look meek. Even on screen, he looks small compared to the other characters. I don't mean just, just in character, he looks meek and small compared to the others. And then to be Superman, it's just amazing how he can make that transfer. And I love that scene in Lois's apartment where he makes the decision that he's going to tell her he's Superman. And you see that transformation and then he decides not to, puts the glasses back on, starts to slouch down, and he seems small and meek again. And he's, he is. I, I'm 100% sold he's Superman and I'm 100% sold that he's Clark Kent. So he's fabulous in that role. And I have yet to see anybody else play Superman that meets that kind of performance. I will say there is, if there was anything I would have wanted to see, um, I would have liked to see the, um, the bumbling part turned down just a smidge, but that's just me personally. I think it's a little bit over the top. And that's that's the only part of of what I get from Chris Reeve where I feel like there's almost a campiness to it, but he's always able to pull it back. So if if I could do anything to change anything about what he did, which is very minor, would just be to have him tone that down by one notch. You know, like that's it. Otherwise, I think what he does is is really good. Um, I I want to ask you guys though about Margot Kidder. Because for me, this is the part of the movie that gets really difficult because I do not like her at all in this role. And it makes it really difficult for me to buy the movie because I, what Chris Reeve is doing, she's not for me. And she's one of the things that helps make this super, in my words, campy. I, You know, I don't, it's going to get tiring for, for me to sort of like defend, you know, these different points. I can see the point of view. I really can. Um, but at the same time, I think that it, the sort of tragic reality of Margot Kidder's performance is it is so good that you forget that she's like her Lois inhabits the space 
regardless of whether you agree with the interpretation of the character, she inhabits that space. She is Lois Lane. She's this Lois Lane. And so I think that Margot Kidder delivers a, a great performance in terms of the the you know the campiness or the humor. I I would love it if she were still around to continue speaking about the role. And I know that it you know I mean she had her difficulties personally um, that led to you know di- different unfortunate headlines and stuff like that. And she's no longer with us. But I really do think that. Um, of all of the uh, the actors w- below or above uh, the line, I think that Margot Kidder is the one that over time is, has gotten a little bit of short shrift. Um, and I think it's I think it's because her character is very much a reflection of the modern woman of then, or a play on it, a riff on it. And so I think that sometimes those sensibilities don't age as well as uh, some of the other character interpretations. So I really do love her in this role and I love it. I love her performance even more because I've seen some of the audition tapes with other actresses. And the one thing that stood out to me about her performance versus the others that auditioned was she had more spunkiness to her and more spice And I really like that play when you have the meek Clark Kent next to this woman. They're like yin and yang. And then when Mm -hmm. he's Superman, she knows how to tone that down and become more of the meek character in that scene. And Superman is the more dominant character and she's more of the fumbling. I don't really know what to do or what to say or whatever. And I think she does a good job bridging those two performances based on who she's playing against, whether it's Clark or Superman. But the thing I want to point out on what your concern is, Matt, and what you said about sometimes Clark seemed to that performance bumbling and fumbling a little too much. I think when we get to Metropolis, what I like about this, and I think their intention was doing is it's not so much that it's campy. It's more that this, when we get to Metropolis, it's more of a wink to the audience throughout. There are so many out of universe jokes about, you know, oh, there's the phone booth. Well, it's not a phone booth. It's a phone stand. And so Clark can't go and change in the phone booth. And, you know, Perry White always saying in the 1950s series, you know, don't call me chief. And now all of a sudden, don't call me sugar chief. Yeah. There are so many winks at the audience. And I feel that the performance of Clark and just pushing it to the edge of being a fumbling bumbling guy that can't get his act together is still one of those winks to the audience that that's what you kind of expect Clark to be. And I feel like Lois does the same thing. It's like the performances maybe just a slightly bit over the top because the script calls for that. And it's that whole direction of you guys, the audience are kind of in on this and you know, you know, these characters, you get the inside jokes and we're playing along with it. That's how I interpret it when I watch the Metropolis scenes. I, I like what you say, though, uh, Bruce, about how well Kidder transitions just as much as, as Reeve, where when the, the characters flip, you know, like when 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 it's Superman, she's one way. When it's Clark, she's she's herself and how they're both sort of. I, I, I guess uh, thrown off their game when they're not 
them really, uh, you know, comfortable. And I, I like that. I really like that uh, comment on the on the duality of it. That's, I like that. No, no, I see what you're saying, Bruce. And and I think you know, uh, I, for me again, you know, it, it with the the Superman stuff and and with Chris Reeve, you know, I the phone booth thing I thought was really funny. You know, that's just a great, you know, joke because there aren't you know a lot of phone booths anymore. Um, so I thought that was excellent uh, kind of humor. Uh, to put in there today he would yeah, walk I, up to a charging yeah. station for cell phones and look at it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know I, part of the thing with the kidder is is that they put that stupid flying sequence in where she's singing and it's just awful um that doesn't help the portrayal of the character uh i don't think um so maybe if you'd taken that Wait out it might have helped stupid flying sequence I, I like the flying sequence. I don't like this whole montage of her like singing while they're flying. It's really bad. Well, she's not. She's mind. not. She's not yeah. singing. She's. Okay. It's, okay. She, you know it's what I'm saying. Thoughts. Like this whole like, can you read my mind thing? It's just it should never have been in the film. Um, just allow them to fly and and you know. Well, I think that just, goes back to what John was saying. I think for the time it worked, but yeah, if they were to do that today in a movie, that would be really weird but at but at the same time if even even if you have a problem with it the trade-off is that you get an absolutely beautiful piece of music composed by john williams fair trade so far as i'm concerned but then you ruin it by putting margot kidder doing this weird spoken word thing well what what we really what we really need to do is we need to point out that how is he extending his powers? I want to know. I want a scientific explanation I do want to for, know that. That, for how it doesn't make any sense. How is she flying like that? It's, it doesn't it's make sense. It's just crazy. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, no, I, I just, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't. That's one of the things that doesn't work for me. Um, I do really like Gene Hackman as Lex, although I don't think he gets a ton to do in the movie. He kind of, we'll put it this way, like it's definitely one of those things where this is a time period where we don't really explain a lot of stuff. We just like put it on screen and like there's, but there's not a lot to Hackman's character as Lex. A lot of it's taken for granted. And a lot of things are, I mean, the fact that I don't understand how Hackman figures out the kryptonite thing, because it doesn't make any sense um, to me. The fact that, uh, you know, he easily figures out that, oh, well, irradiated pieces of, you know, Superman's planet. That's that's what's gonna do it. You it know, it's in like a book. <laughs> yeah, it just it like comes out of nowhere. Um, and it's just because well, we need Lex to know about Kryptonite, but it's like it's just so strange to me because when I take into the context of the story, I mean, like Superman's been on the job for like five days. Like, you know, you're putting some things in from the the source material that we all know metatextually but inside the film don't necessarily make good sense. Uh, yeah, but a parsec is a light year, not a measure, you know, not a minute. And like, it, it's, it's again, one of those things where he's super genius and he figured it out. Okay. I mean, like, I, I don't, I think that the standards have just shifted in such a way that uh, there's an expectation now that we're going to know how Thor's hammer was forged and those sorts of, you know, those sorts of things. And it's, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with it at all. I mean, it's for as much about the verisimilitude that, that, that 
that we talk about and the selling it and those sorts of things and the the move away from camp and the taking the character seriously. It's just fun to indulge the villain and the villain aspect, right? I mean, it's it's just fun. And Hackman is so much, he is having such a good time with this yeah. role. No, I agree with that. I mean, the, the, the biggest complaint I've ever heard up to this point is that he refused to shave his head. But, you know... They wrote in something that worked for it, so that's fine. And I mean, I, I'm not complaining about that. I, I think the one thing that you, you kind of pointed out there is they're having, you know, I feel like with this, the character of Superman, we, we take him very seriously. But I don't feel like we take everything else in the movie very seriously, especially when we get to Metropolis and I, it, the Lex part and his plan. That's the part where it's like, we need that to be less campy, especially with Otis and Miss, Miss Tessmacher. And I feel like I want that to be a little bit more serious because I'm having trouble. I, I, I think it's just a tonal issue. Like the, there's the tone is not consistent enough when we get to Metropolis with. Uh, and I, I kind of wonder if part of that is because Donner is slowly losing control mm. by this point of the edit. And, it's he doesn't get to necessarily do all the things. I mean, they are already changing the ending anyway um, to something else. I just wonder if part of that comes out too in this in this part of the movie because the other two parts of the movie I feel like are very consistent in the way that they take themselves seriously. So Metropolis just doesn't, and and everything that happens after that, it's just not as serious, and I think it kind of hurts the movie. I I see. The the Otis and Miss Tessmacher thing, like it's sort of the, you know, the the super genius surrounds himself with those who can never challenge him, sort of thing. And I I don't I don't know how seriously uh, you want to take things when you're talking about setting off uh, nukes. Uh, and I think that his plan is, yeah, you know what? I'll use the word comic. It's comic genius that he's going to sink California so that he can have oceanfront real estate to sell. It's, it's one of those things where that like, you know, like talking about the winks earlier, it's like, how are you possibly going to have some sort of plot that's going to require Superman's full efforts to, uh, to um, stop, you know, like, the only place they could go from here is to have other kryptonites, you know, come back suddenly and fight him. Like you're, you're talking about a, a nearly all powerful character. And so you've got to indulge that and be like, well, what, what insane plot could we throw out there? That's going to be the big test of his powers for this big entertaining spectacle that we're trying to do. And this, you know, this fits that bill. You know, I'm thinking about this period of, time in the 70s and the last really live action success that we had in a superhero was the 60s Batman series which is very yep. campy and I think a lot of the attitudes then were comic books are campy and silly and such and and I think as we're talking through this uh, yeah the, it when we are on Krypton and when we're in Smallville there's a seriousness to this everything else plays a little more on the comic side except for Superman. Yet Superman is probably the most ridiculous character in the whole movie. Yes. Because 
everybody else is a real human like we are. And then there's this guy that's got powers and can do x-ray vision and fly around in underwear. But he's the most real and most serious character in the movie. And I think the only way that works is you make a somewhat comic book, slightly campy movie, but create a seriousness and a credibility in the lead character by creating those earlier scenes that are more serious. So when we get to the metropolis, all of a sudden we believe in this character and we are taking him seriously. And I think that's the brilliance of this movie. And I think that camp is part of comics and the attitude towards superheroes at that time. And I think that's why this movie works well. I don't think it would have worked as well if you didn't have some camp in the metropolis scenes. And I think there's also uh, something that just as audiences we've gotten away from is there's just an acknowledgement. We're here to have a good time. We're not here to incrementally move a 10 year plot forward. We're not here to um, necessarily tie together, you know, four different titles in a giant franchise or anything like that. We're here to experience and enjoy and delight and not worry about the real world for two and a half hours. And so I, I think there, there's also that also informs a lot of what happens here. And I think the movie works in the same manner as the wizard of Oz when you're in Kansas, Ooh. that's where things are more serious and real and normal. And then all of a sudden you get to Oz and it's, you know, crazy. And we've got munchkins and witches and flying monkeys and whatever. I feel like it's that same kind of transition, almost like Metropolis is the fantasy world. Right. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that makes sense. And I guess we're not in Kansas anymore. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's a good explanation. I think that's the thing that doesn't work for me. I, I don't think they needed to do that. And I, again, to me, I have, I have a very difficult time at the end of the film because they make that choice. The other part about the ending that really bothers me is just the timeline and the editing is really off because Lex and his cronies switch the missiles but then they're back at the base to talk to Superman when he arrives and then the missiles get shot off and it literally takes them forever to get where they're going enough time for Superman to languish in a pool like it's all happening at the same time and it doesn't make a lot of sense the 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 timeline for it all uh and i just it's like it it just bothered me in the editing because all of these things take place very quickly and none of them make sense together i, I that stood out to me more so this viewing than it had in the past there were some things about it that yeah and, and this has always been the least favorite part of the film for me anyway but i i remember watching it this round and uh Miss Tessmacher is saying, you know, save my my mother. She lives in Hackensack. You know, make that the first missile. Well, we've seen that missile going through like 
farm country, uh, you know, all the agriculture going on. And then when he goes to get the missile, we now, it now it looks like in, it's in Nevada somewhere, you know, it's like in desert area. It's like, wait, it looks like it already was going through the Midwest and heading towards New Jersey. And now it looks like it's in Nevada. Like <laughs> even that like threw me off. It's like, wait, it just seems like they're just putting missiles wherever they want to put them. Well, just never mind the fact that uh, missiles actually shoot up into orbit and then, uh, uh, you know, they, they launch their warhead down. So there's really more of a parabolic arc uh, than traveling over the countryside, um, as it were, which is why the you know, SDI was proposed to shoot down the missiles and everything. But, you know, I, I like at at that point. Yeah. Could I could I say, oh, well, this should happen in quicker sequence. Yeah, probably. But at the same time, it happens in a logical sequence, and I understand everything that's going on. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fall on the side of of calling it bad editing. I'm just gonna say, well, you know, all right, this took a little bit longer than it should have, or that I would have liked it to. But yeah, it's not a big sin. What did you? Uh, I, I know. It's kind of hard when you, you know, John, you and I in aggressive negotiations, we just talked about uh, the Return of the Jedi soundtrack. And, you know, they're just as much for the Star Wars series or the Indiana Jones series or the Harry Potter series. Uh, John Williams did something here that he did with those series, which is to create a audio language for this character so that when you think Superman, usually you think of the John Williams theme, which is just an incredible achievement that you can take notes and indelibly mark them on a character forever like that. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the Superman score is, so far as I'm concerned, it gives anything he did for Star Wars a run for its money, and you know how much I love that music. Um, the the fanfare version of the Superman theme can move me to tears on certain days. Um, it's, I mean, this is an absolute masterwork of a score. It, it is always going to be mind boggling what John Williams created from like 1975 to 1984 is like, wow, this is one brain. Now the, the fun thing is that once I don't think that listening to scores was really like so much of a thing before John Williams, but what what's fun also is hearing sometimes um, little tiny cues that you could listen to and be like, oh, that sounds like uh, when Luke is there in Return of the Jedi, or that you can hear in Return of the Jedi, you're like, oh, that's that's actually that sounds like the Green Crystal theme from Superman and stuff like that, and. I just I think this is an absolute stunner of a score. I think it's just untouchable. I think it's magnificent. You know what I like about doing these shows is like talking to you guys and other people and stuff because it's like I, I don't know that many people in my life, in my real life, personal life that, you know, loves these movies and things like I do. And it's so great to hear you guys, even though some opinions different than others, but you know there's things you guys say that I think, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't know if I was the only one who thought that, but obviously I'm not. You guys bring out the same things. And John, I, you know, when you said moves you to tears, I wasn't even sure if I was going to bring it up, but there's times where I've heard live performances of this. And one time, even in high school, 
we played this in band and I had to struggle from not getting teary eyed <laughs> because I love yeah. the fanfare. It's my favorite more so than star Wars or any other piece of music. I re- you know, it's, it's always been my favorite to the point that I've even thought of putting in my will to play this at my funeral <laughs> because <laughs> it's my favorite. Yeah. And, but I don't want people to think, you know, why well, he wanted this, like, wait, wait, think he's Superman. That's why he wanted to play this. It's just, I love this piece of music. And it, when I hear the fanfare for Indiana Jones, that structure is very similar. They're almost yeah. too close, but, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, I think the music's brilliant. I love John Williams and, uh, I love the score. I loved, uh, I was watching a behind the scenes extra and, uh, Donner was talking about the score and how he loved it because, you know, it comes on the screen and it actually says, he's like, it says the word Superman to you. Yeah. Superman. Da, 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 da. I mean, it's like it, it legitimately is saying who the hero is and it, it announces to you that this movie is all about Superman. And, you know, I think like you said, John, it, and, and as we've talked through the, uh, the John Williams scores for, uh, Star Wars, you know, we've done all of the original films now. We've done all of the prequel films. Williams just has a way of not only doing amazing fanfares, but it's all of that quiet music. It's all of those tender moments that Williams is able to do just so well. And, you know, I've I've listened to this score many, many times, and I, I have the two-disc edition, which is just gorgeous presentation of the, the score, um, all the way from Krypton to the end of the film, it's a masterpiece. And and I think, you know, Bruce, you're 100% right. And John, I think you said too, this rivals anything else that John Williams ever did. And it, it's so hard, it boggles the mind to think that he's responsible for all of the themes that play in my head a majority of the day, most <laughs> days of the year. Yeah. You know, um, and... You know, look, we're not adding anything special here to anything that's been said about the the music, but it is it is the thing that I think on top of the Smallville sequence, this is the thing I enjoy the most about the movie Superman was the music. Like it's the thing that um, I'm so glad this movie existed because it meant that John Williams created what he did, and it, it's what makes this movie a hallmark to me you know, is, is really <laughs> that music, which is in a crazy thing to say that the thing you love the most about a movie is the music. Um, but John Williams is just that good. So, yeah, I, I, just to, just to sort of like one last comment to tie into that is this is just yet another score where, I mean, obviously I can't think up, you know, music for another movie. So this is sort of a, a, a silly comment, but when you hear it, and and it's on the film, you just think to yourself, there's absolutely no other sound that could have happened for this. There's no other orchestration. Mm-hmm. There's no other arrangement of notes that works. Now, obviously, some other composer could have come in and done a fine job, but I cannot imagine, I can't fathom anybody else doing this. It's just magnificent. So, Matt, I have to ask you, the when the, the love theme comes on, do you start singing in your mind, can you read my mind? You're ruining it, Bruce. <laughs> you're you're just ruining it. Um, I do, you know, Bruce. It, John, it's it's so funny that you mentioned that because 
one of the things that I love about those expanded scores for either Star Wars or, oh, yeah. uh, you know, they, they just did an expanded score section for all of his music for the Harry Potter films, one through three that he did, which is phenomenal. Um, but on the Superman soundtrack uh, that I have, there are alternate takes. Yeah. And so it's interesting, like you were talking about, you know, somebody else doing it. Well, John Williams did that himself and he had to come to just the right notes and it and it's always fascinating to listen to those alternate takes because it's like it's almost there but it's not quite yet you know not quite and and he would real it seems like Williams is that's the thing that he's so good at is realizing when it's almost there but it's not perfect yet mm-hmm. and and that's what I think differentiates him sometimes from maybe other film composers and so um yeah gosh when when you know <laughs> Uh, Zimmer had to try and create a new sound for Superman. Like you just, you're like, well, good luck, bro. I mean, you know, and it, his is, his is fantastic, but I mean, it's, it's like, I just feel bad for somebody trying to do that. Like it's, it's an impossible task. Well, well, I, I know this is a rabbit hole, but Zimmer was the right choice there because Zimmer's all about minimalism and sort of like mm-hmm. playing against, like you look at his Batman work. You know, right. like it's 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 a complete opposite in a sense from what Danny Elfman gives you. So it right. made perfect sense for him to be the one to follow up with Superman because it's like right. you need the antithesis of what came before. The, the, the only answer you have to that question. Well, and what's, you know, just to kind of go down that rabbit hole just a little bit, you know, what he's able to do is to create something that's soaring and beautiful and majestic, but in a different way. Right. And, you know, like you said, I think he was the perfect person because he creates something, he can create amazing themes, but they're just different from the the way that Williams does it. And that's a good thing. So, gosh, I, I think, you know, it, it's one of those films of 40 years uh, of Superman as we talk about this here. Uh if you're gonna try and rate this movie, what do you rate uh, Superman the movie? Uh, I think for any minor complaints I might have here or there, you know, like I conceded, like you know, one sequence could go a little bit shorter than it does, that sort of thing. This is definitely whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, if you were to like sort of like pick it, no chairs on Krypton, sort of thing. I, I mean, for me, this is knock it out of it out of the park. This is there's a reason this is, this has been regarded as a gold standard for so long, and I, I think that this is just I don't. It's impossible to say something like there are no superhero movies as we know them without this. But honestly, this this was such a genre defining moment that if you truly look at the way they all the way down to the way they marketed the 1989 Batman 10 years later it's almost identical to how they approached it big name celeb for the villain zany comic booky plot at the end character main character taken very very seriously and the hype leading up to it was all about making you believe that this is real and i think that this is there's a reason that this is looked back at so fondly and why people continue to enjoy it to this day. I think that this is an enduring classic. Man, I don't know if I can say it any better than that. Um, Yeah. I mean, to me, this is the ultimate superhero movie. Any superhero movie I saw after this, there were some that I really liked and some that I didn't, 
but none of them measured up to this. It really wasn't until I saw Spider-Man 2 that I really mm. put that up there with Superman the movie and then The Dark Knight. Then that put up, you know, then then I started to see some superhero movies that I would put up there with this one. But yeah, this was the one that this is the crown jewel. This is the level you want to get at. And um yeah, so I mean, again, as much of a Star Wars fan that I am, this was up there for me at that time. And uh, it's still seeing it again this past week means a lot to me that, you know, I'd give it five out of five reverse trips around the world. <laughs> well, thanks for screwing up the uh, everything, Bruce, then. Uh, gosh, because the moon's all out of whack. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I am uniquely odd in that this film does not rank highly for me um I, there's there's too much about it that i have a problem with and um what i appreciate about it is is that i do think that donner is the first one to take the hero of a of a superhero movie and and take it seriously for that i'm very grateful because i do think that superheroes um can be done well and he starts a trend that that will that continues to this day i mean i think there's a direct line from getting from donner to you know batman begins the dark knight the dark knight rises man of steel all those kind of things like that he creates that 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 line um the movie itself doesn't work as well for me personally and that's just who i am it just it doesn't um but I, I think that Reeve does a a, a good job uh, as the the title character. Um, I think the way that he plays the character is is done well. Um, you know, and uh, it, it's it's interesting to me because I, there are some choices there that other people that play him will actually use and stuff. You know, so and I love the music, as I said. So for me, this is you know. I, I'm unique in the sense that this is this is I don't think this is the pinnacle of superhero movies. I don't I I, I don't think super highly of it um, for for many of the reasons articulated earlier. And it's it's a three out of five for me. Uh, but um, for its place in in superhero films and what it does and what it, it allows us to get to, I'll be eternally grateful for that. Uh, just as a, a, a side note, because you mentioned Batman, you know, we don't get Batman Begins. Uh, I'm sure you're you're alluding to this, but Nolan specifically called out Donner's Superman as his model for how to approach the hero. And uh, actually, I, I know that there's an interview where like Nolan interviews Donner about it. And so you're so spot on that this movie had a very large hand in the most popular interpretation of Batman on screen uh, and how he was portrayed. Well, and, and, and I mean, Patty Jenkins said the same thing when she made Wonder Woman, you know, and I think yeah. uh, for the way, again, that the movie itself, Superman, treats its title character, Superman, I think it, treating them with respect and and treating them seriously is the thing that the movie does the best. And so, again, I, I think it's the reason that we get all that we've got now in this golden age of superhero uh, films. Um, you know, I put it this way. For me, uh, Superman the movie is a, is a Silver Age superhero film. Whereas I think 
where we are now is is um it's weird it's not even the golden age it's it's just it is the age of the superhero film and where we've come to is is what i really enjoy uh and to put it into comic terms it is the silver age superman that we've got now for me personally i'm i'm much more a fan of the more modern comic book hero take on the character so So i became a superman fan because of this movie prior to this i used to watch super friends every saturday but i didn't really become a superman fan to this movie as i mentioned earlier but matt knowing that you're a superman fan what was it that got you into superman was it the comics or was it the animated series or what was uh i mean i watched the animated series so the batman animated series and the superman which was good um, and, um, then I really, I, I think more than, more than the movie, it was, I started reading the comics. Um, and I, I got into the comics, you know, I, I read the death of Superman, you know, I read a lot of, of, um, the, the, the popular runs and, and more of the modern era. I've read everything from the new 52 all the way to what exists now. So I've been reading comics, I guess, for the last 10 years, uh, you know, so I, uh, over 10 years now, I think. Well, that's ridiculous to think that I've been reading them that long. Um, continuously. So I've been that whole modern era of Superman. And then I've gone back and read things like, uh, you know, um, popular runs like Birthright and Red Sun and all that stuff. So really it was the comics that made me a Superman fan. And then, you know, I mean, everybody who's listened to this show knows it, it was Man of Steel that really brought the Superman that I I personally love to screen. So, um, yeah, it, I, I'm, and it, it's, it's interesting. I think for me just because yeah, it was the comics. So, but guys, I really appreciate this. This has been so much fun. Um, and I love that we all had different opinions. So hopefully you enjoyed listening to all of them. Uh, you can yell at me on social media. That's what it's for. Um, but before you do that, uh, I want to thank, uh, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, uh, Ryan Millette and Daniel Noah for supporting the show here through Patreon. They're my associate producers here on the show. Uh, Patreon is the way that you can support the network each and every week to make sure that all of the shows we do keep coming to you. It's an expensive enterprise to put this all together. So uh, patreon.com slash trekfm is where you can become part of our team. We have some great contribution levels, but honestly, every little bit helps. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Uh, Bruce, I, I've loved having you back. We were talking even before the show. It's like, man, I haven't seen you in a while. Like we talk all the time uh, behind the scenes, but we haven't been on the show recently together. And so it's great to have you back and let everybody know where they can catch up with you and uh, what else you've got going on. Well, thanks for having me and especially on this topic. And one reason you haven't seen much of me is because I've been busy doing literary treks here on the network with Dan Gunther, our Star Trek books and comics show. And uh, I also do Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala. It is our live show the night, usually the night after a new episode of Discovery comes on. We're live on YouTube and then it's released as a podcast. During short treks, we try to do it the night of. And uh, I also do the Star Wars report talking about Star Wars. And uh, you can find me doing that with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. 
And John, it is absolutely a pleasure to have you back here in the 602 Club. Uh, where can people find you? Because I'm sure that there are going to be many people who loved what you had to say. They absolutely <laughs> love this movie, and uh, they're going to want to contact you and let you know how much they loved you. Oh, well, gosh. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if people showed up without pitchforks? Um well, you can find me online as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. That's on, yeah, I'm usually lurking around on Twitter, uh, Letterboxd, Goodreads. And, uh, you know, out there with my pal Craig, co-hosting Words with Nerds. I'm rarely in the Babel Conference, so if you want me to see something there, please uh, tag me. And, uh, you know, there's a little show I do over on the Nerd Party Network. Uh, it's a Star Wars show, of all things called Aggressive Negotiations that I co-host with uh, with you, Matt Rushing. And we don't always agree there either. So, you know, <laughs> if you enjoyed this conversation, sometimes, you know, we have lively, aggressive negotiations with each other you mean, about yes. certain Star Wars topics. You mean John's always right on that show, too? Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody Man. said it. Thank it's, you. You know, it's my own show, and I, I got no respect. You know, I'm like uh, Rodney Dangerfield on my own show. Uh, well, you can find me, especially if you you probably do want to yell at me because I said something stupid on the show. Uh, Matt Rushing zero two. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Letterboxd, all under that name. Uh, you can find me here on the network uh, when we get a chance to record. Chris Jones and I do a show called The Orb about Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. On the Nerd Party Network, I do one more show, and that's called Outposts, and I do that with Drea Kaufman. We talk about each and every chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And then last but not least, I do a delightful little show with my good friend Courtney, where we talk about films through the lens of faith, and that is called Cinema Stories. But I want to say thank you so much for joining us, and up, up, and away! Thank you.